daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, China issues white paper on the legal framework and measures for counterterrorism. Japanese business leaders visit China for talks. How significant is this for both countries? And in Germany, hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets in protest against right-wing extremism. What triggered these mass protests? China's State Council Information Office has released a white paper titled China's Legal Framework and Measures for Counterterrorism. The white paper says terrorism is the common enemy of humanity, posing a grave threat to international peace and security. The document says China is a victim of terrorism and has long faced its threat. It says China is willing to work closely with with other countries against terrorism. Wang Haiyang has more. The white paper mainly focuses on China's efforts that have been made on counterterrorism and its contribution to the country's and global security and stability. The document says China has long faced the real threat of terrorism, and it has always attached great importance to law-based counterterrorism efforts. It says China has accumulated experience by joining international conventions and treaties and amending and improving criminal laws. The white paper says a counterterrorism legal framework based on the constitution has been gradually formed in China thanks to more than four decades of experience. The document also points out China has regulated procedures for handling terrorist cases in accordance with the law. It says law enforcement and judicial agencies must exercise their statutory authority and powers to ensure the accurate and effective enforcement of the law. With their responsibilities clarified, law enforcement and judicial agencies have put in place a strict accountability system. Judicial officials who are found to have violated the law in case management will be held accountable and given due punishment. Human rights are also one of the key elements in the white paper. It says China regards respecting and protecting human rights as an underlying principle in improving its legal framework and practices in the field of counterterrorism. It says China has carried out counterterrorism work in accordance with the law, safeguarding the legitimate rights and interests of citizens and organizations, and effectively curbing the spread of terrorism. The document also says China is willing to work with other countries to push forward counterterrorism cause as part of global governance. That's Wang Haiyang reporting. And for more, we are now joined by Shen Dingli, professor in the Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. How significant is the release of this white paper in terms of China's approach to counterterrorism? China faces quite a serious threat of terrorism. For a long time, some Chinese and many international observers uh, have not well understood uh, this uh, important issue. And sometimes uh, they may get confused with China's practice of uh, countering the terrorism. So it's important for Chinese government to uh, clarify its theory and practice uh, in order uh, for its uh, anti-terrorism behavior to be better understood by the world. Therefore, it's uh, of cru- crucial value for government to issue the new document uh, regarding China's uh, uh, practice of anti-terrorism. 
So how does the white paper define terrorist activities? Because、uh, some critics would argue that China defines terrorism broadly so that it can be used to target certain groups.、Uh, so how does the white paper address these concerns?、Uh, different countries define terrorism in a certain、uh, different way.、Uh, roughly speaking, there exists more than 100 different ways of defining terrorism. Even sometimes the United Nations define terrorism、uh, differently on different occasions. Therefore,、uh, so we have to check what the Chinese document has stated. I think it has made it clear that a, ter- a terrorism is a terror, but not all terror would automatically become terrorism. A terror、uh, defines、uh, to coerce people. To brutalize people, to terrify a society, and to hurt a, a certain community, to create a social chaos. So this is the first element. Second,、uh, it's a, it, what motivated the terror.、Uh, it may be a terrorism may be driven by certain political agendas, by certain ideology. For instance, to separate certain parts of China. From China, so this kind of idea constitutes、uh, the second、uh, element of terrorism, and the third, it may turn some support, it may attract some people to participate. So these three elements are terror and、uh, motivation and impact、uh, constitute the three、uh, components. Of the academic definition of、uh, the terrorism, which is also the standard UN definition, I think the Chinese government basically uh, uh, employs this uh, uh, definition, which is identical to that of the United Nations, and that has been widely accepted and employed in, in the world. Yes, and and the white paper says, as a victim of terrorism, China has long faced a real threat.、Uh, so, what are the major terrorism threat that China faces right now, and what are the main challenges in its continued fight against terrorism? Uh, basically, uh, the terrorism in China uh, happen in certain uh, remote uh, uh, area like uh, uh, Xinjiang and.、Uh, Some other places. What drives the terrorism is to separate Xinjiang、uh, from China. So、uh, there are certain group organization which is called the、uh, East Eastern Turkish Independence Movement, which means to separate、uh, this part of China uh, out uh, from China to make it independent. This is a political motivation. But how to do it? For people who disagree with this idea,、uh, those terrorists would employ terror means to coerce, to hurt, to kill people. They did this not only in Xinjiang; they also、uh, do it in other parts of China. For instance, in Kunming, in Guangzhou, and sometimes they come to Shanghai, to Beijing, to、uh, to create a terror effect. And uh, but uh, through China's strong an,、uh, action to beat the terrorism, in the last few years, 
such a, a kind of domestic domestic terrorism has uh, been much curtailed uh, to China's success. Yes, but how does China address the balance between security concerns and the individual rights during counterterrorism operations? Well, I think uh, China's constitution has defined to defy terrorism. But in the meantime, the constitution has also vowed to protect the human rights. In the context uh, between anti-terrorism and protecting human rights, I think there are two components. One is for innocent people who have been hurt by terrorism. Chinese government would work very hard to beat terrorism in order to protect uh, those innocent people uh, who have been hurt. For normal people, they would be protected. For people who have been hurt, we would provide uh, some medical and psychological aid to them in order for them to restore their mental, their physical condition. Second, for those who have been suspected of engaging terrorism, uh, before uh, making sure that they are terrorists, uh, we would still assume they are innocent. But they, they are suspects. We would do thorough investigation to use the evidence to prove either they are innocent or they are criminal. Once uh, proven innocent, they would be released and uh, to, re- uh, to restore their full uh, civilian rights. But once proven as a terrorist, uh, government would use its criminal law, its uh, anti-terrorism law issued in 2015, and its updates to to punish those uh, elements, those terrorists, in order to protect the society and the entire populace of innocent people. Okay, and and how does the white paper address emerging threats such as online radicalization and cyber terrorism? These are the new forms of terrorism because of the convenience and the availability of cyber uh, connectivity. So uh, terrorists could be uh, linked. Terrorists in China and outside China could be linked by the website. Some are Chinese terrorists. Some are non-Chinese terrorists, and they could communicate through uh, Internet. Uh, this creates more challenges. How Chinese government inside China uh, would face terrorism source propaganda from outside of China. And, uh, this, and the government needs to develop new technological means to defy, for instance, to block the external access uh, to in, to uh, the, our operation inside of China, and uh, sometimes to block our terrorists or suspects re- reaching out to terrorists outside. So government is developing those verification technical means in order to block uh, such a kind of internet-based uh, uh, spreading of those vicious ideas. Okay. But still, this remains a challenge. Yes, that's right. And and in what ways has China contributed to global and regional security and stability in the fight against terrorism? Uh, in terms of 911, 
September 11th, 2001, when New York is a twin towers have been hit by Al-Qaeda, and China reached out to America to work with uh, America and the entire world in the United Nations to list uh, the group of Al-Qaeda as international terrorism. And uh, we permit the U.S. FBI to send its uh, staff to work in China, in American embassy in China as diplomat uh, in order to partner with Chinese military or public security well. And the U.S. has permitted Chinese government to send its anti-terrorist staff to be based in Chinese embassy in Washington uh, to stop those trans-Pacific, trans-border international terrorism. And we blocked Wuhan corridor between China and Afghanistan in order not to allow any suspects and terrorists to move freely across the border. So we work with uh, the United Nations and uh, all countries together wholeheartedly to uh, fix those uh, dangerous movements, which not only hurts China, but also hurts America and many other countries. These are the Chinese contributions to the international efforts beating uh, uh, regional and global terrorism. I think China should still continuously work with other countries in this regard. That's Shen Dingli, professor in the Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Japanese business leaders are visiting China for the first time in about four years to hold talks with senior Chinese officials. The delegation is led by the head of the Japan-China Economic Association, Shindo Kosei, and includes leaders of the Japanese Business Federation and Japan Chamber of Commerce and Industry. The Japan-China Economic Association has sent a delegation to China almost every year since 1975, but the visits were suspended after the fall of 2019 due to the coronavirus pandemic. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Professor Rong, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what do you make of the timing of this this visit and how significant is it for both China and Japan? Yeah, I think the visit is uh, certainly very well uh, timed and uh, well prepared. As you may know that uh, uh, the Japanese business community, business uh, corporate sector is very much attached to uh, sort of exchanges with Chinese uh, uh, high-level high exchange with Chinese government officials, uh, leaders, uh, and others since 1975. And as you, as you said rightly, that uh, since the, because of COVID-19, that, that that process, that exchanges, communication has been disrupted, even though I think uh, the uh, they also met uh, in online. So this is the first in four years. And... Uh, the other, I think, uh, sort of a uh, factor or background of the, is the uh, last November, I, President Xi and Prime Minister Koshida uh, uh, met uh, uh, on the sideline, uh, I think, in, in uh, San Francisco region. 
understanding that the two sides were committed to uh, pursue uh, a strategic relationship of mutually beneficial, uh, a, a, a strategic relationship of mutually benefit, and aimed to building a relationship, stable, constructive for new era. So politically, it is also very much uh, uh, important. Last but not least, I think if you look at the political uh, sort of agenda, both of China and Japan, this is uh, a, a very timely and certainly very significant visit for communications uh, uh, for for Japan. I mean, Japanese, particularly for Japanese business community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what do you think are the main priorities and goals of the Japanese delegation for the visit? Well. I think for Japanese uh, business community, uh, uh, the most important thing, of course, they want to have in-person uh, sort of a meeting with Chinese leaders uh, to have a first-hand sort of understanding of what is happening uh, in China economically. Uh, that is the most important thing. I think the second thing uh, go I, is meant to express their uh confidence or their importance that attached to the uh, economic and uh, trade relationship with uh, uh, with China, which is, again, very much important. And last but not least, I think they have some specific uh, sort of uh, issues they want to address uh, according to the press reports by the uh, uh, Japanese, Japanese press reports. Uh, I think uh, the uh, the before their departure, they, they have expressed that there are some issues. For example, they want the uh, the Chinese side to offer that visa exemption to for for, for Japan, uh, and which has been uh, sort of uh, disrupted, suspended because of COVID nineteen, and there are other issues related issues. So I thought that the uh, this is a very uh, sort of a timely uh, planned, but also very much I think uh, clear. Well, how has uh, the Fukushima water release impacted the businesses and trade between China and Japan? And are there expectations for any discussions or resolutions on uh, on this matter? I think on the release, of, I mean, of the uh, terminate, uh, contaminated waters of Fukushima Daiichi, uh, I mean, uh, nuclear waters, Chinese position has been clear and consistent, and this is an issue that uh, uh, related touches upon um, the public health, the environment of maritime, uh, uh, global maritime, uh, uh, marine environment, and this is a big issue. And of course, it's natural for China, for China, uh, for Japan's neighboring countries, Pacific, con- I mean, island countries, international communities, express concern. The fact that Japan, in disregard of this concern and opposition, uh, went ahead forcefully for the release is very bad, very bad. I think again, the Chinese made it very clear. The Chinese side they would like to, uh, Japan to stop that. And they also wanted to uh, Japan to face up these the reality to deal with in a scientific, safe, and transparent manner. And China is ready to for, work with that for the consultation. So, uh, and out of the, because of that, Japan's fishery products 
to China, I mean, export has been affected greatly. So if Japan, the Japanese business community in particular, they have their concerns, they should address or talk to China, the Chinese relevant side, and this framework, taking into account the China's concerns and the position on that. Yes, and, and how do geopolitical factors play into the current economic interactions between China and Japan, for instance, uh, with uh, the United States intensifying efforts to decouple with China, especially in the technology sector? How is Japan strategically positioning itself to navigate all this? I think, in general, uh, Japanese community has a very clear position on that. They don't like, as far as I can see, I think the uh, politicized or over-securitized the uh, economic uh, uh, relationship uh, between China and Japan. And in the meantime, I think they also understand that uh, the being uh, the ally of the United States, Japan, and the Japanese government is very much, I think, following uh, the uh, Japanese uh, Americans' uh, geopolitical game. So this is this, which gives Japan, Japanese community, uh, a kind of a, a situa- situation in a way that how they can uh, play a role in manage that. That's why I think that they still very much feel that uh, being the the uh, sort of uh, uh, the important, given the importance of the relationship for Japan, they really want to ensure. Uh, Geopolitics will not get in the way that uh, uh, that in the end undermine the uh, normal practice, normal relations of, with, with with China. And I think Japan, Chinese market, and the China and Japan's business community has a huge interest and huge stakes for that. And that's why I think they feel, uh, I mean, the kind of imperative they really want to play a role. And this is exactly, I think, the uh, one of the, 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 the traditions or one of the features of China-Japan relationship in the past years. They uh, promote the political relationship through uh, business, I mean, by giving full play the business communities so that I think the relationship will be, political relationship will be on the right track. But mm-hmm. it's become increasingly difficult. And not difficult and challenging. Right. And then, by the way, how do public perceptions in both China and Japan impact corporate decisions and strategies? And how do you think exchanges like this can help fostering greater understanding between people of the two countries? Uh, That's a very great question. I think that Japan and China are close neighbors, separated by one strip of water, historically, culturally. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, the public perception, uh, because of the media, the Japanese media, and because of the issues like the, uh, the historical issues, the territorial issues, and also as a recent issue related to security and geopolitics, geopolitics has not been good. Uh, that is uh, unfortunate. But in the meantime, I think both sides attach great importance to this relationship. I mean, we are close neighbors, China and Japan. They cannot move away, cannot separate. And that's, that gives, I think, the, uh, the, the room and importance for strengthen uh, people-to-people interaction. 
And as a matter of fact, if one follows the past years, past 10 years of infection, we see, uh, and be- particularly before the COVID-19, we have seen more and more Chinese uh, tourists visiting Japan and play a very important role in bringing, in deepening the understanding. Mm-hmm. And Yes, thank you, Dr. Wang Ying, Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Global shipping rates are skyrocketing as Houthi forces continue to attack ships in the Red Sea. Data from Fatal's Terminal shows that the cost of shipping from Asia to Northern Europe has surged 460% compared to mid-October. The cost of shipping from Asia to the North American East Coast has climbed 130% since the end of October. 12 to 15% of global trade worth over 1 trillion US dollars passes through the Red Sea annually. However, major shippers have now diverted container ships around the Cape of Good Hope, adding more than a week to transit time. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tiangin, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Anna, thank you for joining us. So, first, what's the importance of the Red Sea in the global trade? Where do we stand right now in terms of the trade? And it's not just the Red Sea. There are a host of shipping channels in that region that could be affected. So, we are already seeing the shipping prices going up and skyrocketing. So, how do you explain it? Well, it's a very important area because not only for energy, but also for food. And, you know, there have been a number of reports um, that have been put out about food safety. Uh, A lot of the bread baskets, whether it's coming from Ukraine or Russia, uh, these are being interrupted. And it's affecting, it's a much stronger effect regionally. Uh, For instance, in terms of the amount amount of trade, it's somewhere between 12 and 15% of the world global shipping uh, business goes through the Red Sea. Mm. Uh, But, it, it's very, it's not just 12 to 15%, it's 40% of containers. So uh, container shipping, uh, there are a lot of intermediate goods, Europe very much affected, Africa, Middle East, um, and parts of Central Asia that uh, border on that area use those ports. So it has a tremendous effect in terms of the logistics. Uh, if you start looking at the amount of time that is, it adds to it, if you don't use uh, you know, the Suez Canal, which is down 40% now, uh, you basically have to go around the Horn of Africa. That can uh, literally uh, add a quarter to 50% to 100% in terms of the amount of time. So that means more energy, you have to use more fuel for the, for the ships. It means that you have to have um, uh, crews that are on there longer. So that increases the price. But it also disrupts uh, the supply lines, because so many supply lines are just in time. You you don't order, you know, a month and a he- ahead of time. You're expecting the deliveries to be within a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden now it's going to be uh, over a month. Mm-hmm. And the number, because there are so many ships, all right, the number of ships goes down because the time increases. So mm-hmm. there's more competition for uh, space on the ships, and they have to have more ships uh, in action. 
Mm. So it, it has a, a downstream effect and a, a lot of economic consequences, mostly to do with the supply side and then, uh, of course, logistics. Mm. So it seems that no one really knows how long will this uh, interruption of shipping services could continue, right? So we just know the costs are going up, but it seems that uh, this is not a figure into all the costs of a consumer item so far. If you look at the United States, for example, the market hit two new records, the S&P and also the Dow. So when do you think the consumers are really going to start feeling the pinch of this? Okay, and it's going to be in the first quarter of uh, this year, uh, towards the uh, middle and end. You're going to start to see uh, additional costs uh, from the logistics side, uh, also, you know, you know, just purely from supply, because if you can't get the grain to a certain port, uh, the the customer will say, OK, we'll find some other source and we'll go from there. But, you know, generally you ship from the closest, most efficient uh, in terms of cost and time. Uh, now you're disrupting that. Uh, and that means that global food uh, prices start to go up, uh, both from logistics and supply side. So it disrupts everything. And you start getting a competition between these countries. You can't exist without food. You can't exist without energy. You can't uh, manufacture if you don't have the parts. So a very, very strong effect. Uh, but as I said, it takes, as you pointed out, it takes a little bit of time uh, for the existing inventories to be run down. And then the costs of the new inventories uh, start to go up. Mm. But in terms of uh, how long this will last, it is not about uh, trade, it's about politics. And as long as the situation in Gaza continues, this will continue. Uh, Israel has said they're looking at a year. So many companies are looking long-term about how to completely change their supply chain uh, to avoid this area. Already insurance companies are saying, we will not insure shipping that is going through the Red Sea. So uh, either you take the chance uh, and then, you know, there are issues with the crew and safety and things like this. Um, and no one wants to be in a war zone. And mm. right now, things are escalating, not de-escalating. Uh, the U.S. Is, and, uh, and their allies are now actively bombing many places throughout the Middle East. And you can see more of this uh, kind of disruption. And this is exactly, you know, it's terrible for trade. Mm. And we have already, you know, heard much about the supply chain crisis since the COVID began. So what does the Red Sea crisis, how does this equation figure into it? Because experts have already warned that, uh, you know, the uh, crisis to create a chaotic period for European manufacturers and retailers as the supply chains are disrupted. So what do you make of that and how much will the Europe suffer from it? Well, once again, Europe is going to be uh, the main advanced economy uh, that is affected. As I said, with 40% of the containers uh, going through the Red Sea, uh, now to get what they need, uh, they have to add uh, additional logistics cost on top of that, and that has to be passed on to consumers. So that will result in inflation for them. Um, and it's it's just this is a really bad time for uh, Europe. Uh, they are already slated uh, for 2024 to be at 1.2% uh, GDP growth. Uh, that could definitely be affected. You could take off uh, as much as 0.2%. It doesn't sound like much, but that could be the issue that pushes the 
EU into recession. Uh, there had already been some uh, decreases in the amount of fuel prices, uh, but this is going to increase that. So you're going back to a situation where people's real incomes will not um, match inflation. And as a result, that's more misery, especially for you know the majority of people who need gas, food, uh, who work in factories. And maybe those factories are no longer seen as economically viable. You know, you already saw that during the first uh, supply chain disruption. You had companies like the chemical giant BASF basically close their entire German operations and move their production to China simply because otherwise they could not be competitive. They could not compete with uh, their uh, the rest of the market. Uh, so they had to do it. And in a broader picture, so how will this impact the global economy? For example, what if the uh, inflation rise up again and that would ultimately be the concern of the U.S. Federal Reserve? And uh, that's why maybe they would not cut the interest rate, right? Absolutely. If uh, the inflation starts to go back up again in the United States, uh, the Fed has already indicated that inflation is their number one concern. Uh, they could uh, either further delay uh, rate cuts uh, or uh, increase uh, the rate cuts in order to, quote, control inflation. Unfortunately, you can't control inflation if it's about uh, food or energy um, or production costs. Uh, those are hard line uh, issues. Uh, you can say, well, we'll stop producing because we're no longer competitive. Um, but as I said, once that decision is made, companies are going to make long-term decisions to go elsewhere. That's Einar Tiangian, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. In Germany, protests against the far-right Alternative for Germany party are gaining momentum. Over a million people took to the streets over the past weekend in cities across Germany, following a report that senior AFD members discussed a plan to deport millions of immigrants. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Hans-Peter Berghoff, chair of the Banking and Finance Department at the University of Hohenheim in Germany. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you today. So uh, we know that the protests were triggered by a report revealing that uh, the AFD members meeting with extremists to discuss expelling immigrants. So can you provide more context on the report and how it catalyzed such widespread public mobilization? Well, the idea was that there are large groups in Germany which shouldn't be there. And the definition of these groups was rather vague. And so it was somehow an attack on this society, which in the middle of Europe, and we live in diversity and almost everybody in this family is somebody coming from somewhere. And so we want to have a lifestyle in an open society with lots of communication, with lots of different ideas. And this was directly aimed against this kind of society. So that's why the public reacted so strongly. Yes. So actually, the concept of re-migration sits at the heart of this controversy. Uh, can you explain the historical and, and legal context surrounding this tournament and why is, is it so controversial? Well, it's controversial because you can understand it on different levels. The first one is simply descriptive. Every big migration has its re-migration because people move back for good reasons willingly uh, in every bit large migration. So this is not a problem, that's just a free choice of these people. 
Secondly, on a, on a more critical level, you could say it's something to do with social contracts. Sometimes groups enter your country which don't accept the values of the rules according to which a society is living. So in self-defense, you must say either you accept the rules and accept the rights of your co-citizens in this country, or you have to leave. But thirdly, there's a clear discriminatory aspect. You don't accept people because of their name, their color of skin, of their race, of their, their religion. And often you don't accept people, although their families live for generations in your country. And this is a clear, a very aggressive concept. And this meeting was more about the third one. So that's why everybody is so provoked by it. Yeah, so, so de- demonstrations were held in about 100 locations across Germany. How significant is the widespread participation? And, and does it indicate a broad-based opposition to the AFD nationwide? It does. Uh, it reached parts of society which normally don't go to demonstrations like that. So this was, in this sense, a success. The problem about it is kind of feel good. You go to a demonstration and feel that now you're together with other people looking for the right thing. Uh, Some, especially conservative politicians, said, take care. This is a good feeling, but you must make something out of it. You must actively participate in democracy. You must engage yourself in one of the democratic parties to make something lasting out of it. And this is still to be seen if this effect really comes out of it. Yeah, so how has uh, the general public reacted to these protests? Well, uh, generally positive, especially the public media. But there was a little stance people didn't like, which at least I don't like, which was that especially left-wing proponents tried to hijack these protests for their concept of society, of a vogue society, of a society mm-hmm. which doesn't have conservative values. And I think we need a how should I say, an alliance of conservative and progressive values to fight against this kind of extremist values. And so I'm afraid this kind of reaction in the public weakens the effect of the demonstrations. Yeah, so look ahead. What do you think are the potential implications of these protests on um, the political landscape in Germany, especially with upcoming regional elections in eastern Germany where uh, the AFD has strong Mm -hmm. support? Um, I'm not sure if you really reach the people who will vote for this party with these kind of demonstrations, because, as I said before, there's a strong uh, hijacking by the leftish uh, forces, which gives these people the idea, well, this is just all part of the general concept to bring us away from our new uh, ideas about how we should change our country. So I'm afraid there's not much effect for the moment. It would be stronger if all these people would really engage for democracy and would participate in the election, fight for Democratic Party in the election. But I'm afraid many of them will just stay with the demonstration as a feel-good uh, aspect, and that's not enough. Yeah, but could these protests lead to any concrete actions from the government or other institutions to address concerns about far-right extremism in Germany? No, it might be even dangerous in the sense that the government doesn't feel it has to do much about its policy to uh, get closer to what the majority of the citizens want. We have this leftish agenda since Angela Merkel, which led to a situation where the political elites were far more and more estranged from the general ideas of people, and we must get away from that. I hope the pressure to correct, especially, for, for example, immigrant pol- immigration policy and other aspects of policy, 
this pressure on the government remains because we need this to really reach the people in the conservative democratic spectrum. Yes, but uh, if we think of uh, what gave rise to th- this um, right-wing extremism in Germany, how do you think these um, protests reflect um, the division or polarization within the American, uh, I mean, German, uh, German society? Well, at least a strong signal that a large group of people who will not accept that and who will fight for democracy, if they will really risk something for it, if they really engage, that remains to be seen because, you know, the, the how should I say, the people in the middle of society, they are often politically not very active, and it will be hard to motivate them to do more than demonstrations. But at least we got them to demonstrations. That's something good already. Mm-hmm. So how do these protests in Germany fit into the wider context of growing concerns about right-wing populism and nationalism in Europe and beyond? Well, Germany, somehow, as I said at the beginning, is not the heart of Europe. And this is strong signal that the majority of people who want to live in an open society, in a democratic society, with a large diversity of people, of opinions, of ideas. And so I think this is a good signal for Europe as well. I would love to be seeing it taken up in other countries in Europe as well. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hans-Peter Burkhoff, Chair of the Banking and Finance Department at the University of Hohenheim in Germany. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The World Tourism Organization says global tourism is set to fully recover from the pandemic in 2024. A recent projection by the UN agency expects this year's international tourist arrivals to be 2% higher than in 2019. Increased global air connectivity and strong recovery of Asian market are set to be the driving force of a full rebound of tourism activities. However, the organization describes geopolitical instability in the Middle East and elsewhere as a risk affecting would-be travelers' confidence. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hun. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Zhao Ying. Uh, So according to data from the World Tourism Organization, last year's international tourism finished at 88% of pre-pandemic levels, uh, with an estimated 1.3 billion international travelers. And the Secretary General of the UN Agency says uh, the data underscores tourism resilience and rapid recovery. What is your take on this? Well, I think if we take into account multiple factors, this particular 88% we're talking about here was actually pretty okay because in the immediate post-pandemic era, People are willing to make international travels, that's for sure. However, there is no denying that there were many logistical hurdles, let's put it this way. For example, the issue surrounding visa issuance. Uh, Because during the pandemic, many countries, including, say, United States and many, many European countries, they really closed some services across their diplomatic posts worldwide, sometimes for a period of years on end. And of course, in 2023, operations resumed and the waiting time for many you know, work-related visas were actually significantly brought down. However, I think the visas for tourists and visitors are still a big hurdle, are still a big problem. Uh, by comparison, I think the global air travel has performed better. Statistically, it has already achieved a near full recovery in capacity over the course of 2023. I think, according to the data I have read about, by October 2023, 
the capacity in this particular regard has re has recovered to 99% globally. And I think um, apart from logistical issues, we also need to consider some economic headwinds globally, like uh, persisting inflations in many major economies uh, in the West, uh, high interest rates and volatile oil prices, etc., etc. These are all challenges to the international tourism sector. And also there was this, you know, outbreak of the Hamas-Israel war in 2023, which, um, to say the least, has really uh, disrupted tourism recovery for Israel and those nearby countries. Because really, if you think about the economies in that region, uh, no one needs a reminder that tourism plays a big economy in countries like Egypt, right? So really, um, an 88% globally was quite okay for 2023. Yeah, actually, the 2023 tourism activities in some destinations like uh, the Mediterranean Europe, the Caribbean, and the Central American and North African subregions already exceeded their 2019 levels. Uh, but by comparison, recovery in some regions is relatively slower. For example, Northeast Asia in 2023 only reached some 55% of the pre-pandemic levels. So what do you make of this mixed picture? Yeah, this mixed picture is real. Uh, I think this is mainly due to this very fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has really affected different regions across the world. Uh, tourism in various degrees, because the Asia-Pacific, for example, is, uh, comparatively speaking, the most affected region in this particular sector. In 2021, for example, international tourist arrivals in the Asia-Pacific region were down by 93% compared to the level in 2019. By comparison, the decline in that same year for Europe was only 59%, and in the case of the Middle East as a whole, it was 58% in that year. So generally speaking, I think we would all agree that the virus control policy during the pandemic was harsher and stricter here in Asia than elsewhere. So I think with that bigger picture in mind, it's really no surprise that the most affected region has seen slower recovery overall. The Middle East is the best-performing region in 2023. It saw a 22% uptick in terms of international arrivals compared to 2019. That being said, like I suggested earlier, the war in Gaza is the real risk for the region. Actually, um, some tourism industry insiders had earlier anticipated the Middle East somehow involving into a so-called New Europe, quote-unquote, with the Iran-Saudi rapprochement, as well as Saudi Arabia's integration into a wider uh, tourism sector system, now their biggest hope is that this ongoing crisis in Gaza don't escalate further, which we know has already widened. Mm -hmm. So looking at 2024, what are the factors that will likely inject a dose of optimism about a full recovery of global tourism and by the way, compared to the pre-pandemic era, do you think there are new characteristics in today's tourism sector? Yeah, I, I think in terms of the optimism um, factors for the situation this year, uh, there is still a significant room for recovery here in Asia or the wider Asia-Pacific region. 
something I suggested earlier. In the case of the Middle East, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries led by Saudi Arabia will actually implement a unified tourist visa over the course of this year. And in Africa, there are measures to facilitate some intra-African travel in Kenya and Rwanda, for example,、uh, for European countries. Romania and Bulgaria will join the Schengen area of free movement in March this year. And also, let's not forget this upcoming Paris Summer Olympics. That's for sure. In the meantime, I think a stronger U.S. dollar. Might also prompt some American tourists to make more international travels because Americans are not known to be international travelers. That's for sure. That's a stereotype. Obviously, the pandemic has brought many changes to tourism, like the emergence of, say, domestic and local tourism,、uh, revolution in health and 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 standards and safety standards, for example. A digital wave in the travel sector, etc., etc. So these are the so-called new normal that really industry insiders、uh, should be getting themselves better prepared for. Yeah, this report has also made a point about China expecting Chinese outbound and inbound tourism to accelerate in 2024. And as we know, China is now implementing a one-year policy to allow visa-free travel for citizens from、uh, Germany, France, Italy. The Netherlands, Spain, Malaysia till the end of November this year. So, what do you think is the message or meaning of this policy? Well, of course, I think、uh, the meaning or the message here is very clear. China will、uh, continue to remain open, and this country will continue to engage with the rest of the international community moving forward. China is part of the international community. That's the bigger, you know, political message. But I think, judging from China's official figures, this policy has certainly boosted international arrivals in China. There was a twenty-something percent a month amongst growth in December last year. I have also read about cases in which, under this policy,、um, you know, some foreign travelers were able to leave the airport here in China in less than half an hour after the arrival of their flights in China. But of course, from China's perspective, of we 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 all know, China all look forward to. More reciprocity, reciprocity—that's for sure. Because we really need to keep in mind that before the pandemic, Chinese travelers really accounted for somewhere around twenty percent of global tourism spending.、Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dinghen, and that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. 